Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome. Welcome back, everyone else. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. Let me fix that. Got it. I'd like to start class by asking you to talk to each other in service of this being a group where you not only get to meditate and, and learn about Buddhism, but also meet other people who are interested in, in this path and are practicing it or interested in practicing it. For a topic for the small groups, um, I'd like you to reflect for a moment on um, your life and what are some of the things in your life that you're pretty attached to? pretty um, maybe even dependent on, addicted to? Do you, is there some things that you're addicted to that you feel like you can't be happy without? Uh, relationships that you feel like you need in, in, in order to feel happy or uh, foods you feel like you need or experiences uh, like that, that need, like when you think of it, like I need. And in Buddhism, and I'm often talking about the difference between wanting and needing, and that which we are, um, you know, attached to, and that which we are not attached to, but we're participating in. Of course, the whole uh, emphasis of Buddhism is that everything that we're clinging to, that we're attached to, is causing us suffering. The cause of suffering is attachment, is clinging, is craving, is... Uh, and that the end of suffering comes from non-attachment. And so I'm gonna to talk tonight about um, that dilemma that we have as householders. Um, most of the teachings that I'm giving, that Buddhism gives, comes from a monastic tradition, people who have renounced participating in sense pleasures and material things. And, um, and then we're over here saying like, oh, I don't wanna go that far. I want to be able to participate in sexuality and money and uh, sensuality and material things. I want to have my stuff. And so, of course, the goal becomes, and what I'm going to talk about tonight is, how do we uh, find that appropriate balance of non-attachment in the midst of participating? Where the Buddha and you know, the monastic tradition says, we're just not going to participate. It's too hard to be non-attached. Uh, to sensual pleasure. It's too hard to be non-attached to material things. So we're just going to give it up. It's easier to renounce it completely. So reflecting on your place, you know, some of you are brand new and you're like, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. I just wanted to learn some mindfulness. Um, but just reflecting, what are the things that we feel like I, I need? I can't live without, it's the source of my happiness. Now, you know I'm setting you up, right? Because the core Buddhist teaching is 
there's no refuge, there's no source of happiness that is reliable except for our own wisdom. Right? This is the whole goal of Buddhism is to understand that is only your, you're the only source of your happiness. There's no sense pleasure, there's no person, there's no place. Now there's lots of people and places and things that bring us a tremendous amount of pleasure and even happiness, like a kind of unreliable but real happiness <laughs> that we get from our relationships that we get from certain sense pleasures or, you know, experiences of comfort or joy, you know, things that bring us joy, but they're not reliable. So of course the Buddhist teaching is to develop a reliable internal refuge. So I'm going to talk a lot about that tonight. I think that's my topic anyways, renunciation, the importance of renunciation. But I want to start with that acknowledgement that it's probably you know you probably have a list of things that you feel like you can't live without maybe you know if you're honest if you're humble enough to be like yeah i feel like i need my stuff you know like i i need i need my house the way that it is i couldn't live in a studio i'd be miserable in a you know ramshackle apartment maybe you live in a ramshackle apartment and you're happy with it but if you you know so that that sort of like oh i'm quite attached i need that or um having a conversation with somebody earlier um they just got a new car and so excited about their new car and thinking like oh this is this car is going to make me happy but you know had enough dharma understanding to kind of know like i know the new car is not going to really make me happy but it's really fun to have a new car or or relationships of that feeling of like it maybe you're in a relationship and you feel like oh i really need this person like i couldn't go on without them i'd be miserable uh this loving and maybe it's a loving healthy relationship and there's that feeling of i need this relationship in order to continue to be happy uh, or maybe you're not in a relationship and you're um have that other feeling of like i can't be happy until i'm in the right sort of relationship relationship would uh, a loving relationship would make me happy then i then everything would be good if i just had the right lover the right partner the right connection and that's a pretty common human feeling i, I need the right partner So what is it for you? What are some of the things that you're attached to and maybe even addicted to? Now, if you're gonna use the term addiction, I'll, I'll define it as um, compulsive and re repetitive behaviors that cause you harm. So don't be like, I'm addicted to meditating. <laughs> I'm addicted to exercising. I'm super addicted to broccoli, man. I fucking, you can eat all the broccoli and you can do the meditation and you can, do the exercise and all that and don't classify those as addictions because those are not uh, compulsive behaviors that lead to harm. They are lead to health. <laughs> You're you know, like, oh, I'm addicted to meditating. You're addicted to recovery meetings, man. You kick the dope and now you're strung out on recovery community. It's like, no, that's a healthy thing to do. It's not, uh, it's not an addiction. That's a healthy, maybe even a healthy dependence. So anyways, that's my opinion about what, when we're talking about addiction, um, but maybe there are some things that you're addicted to that you feel like can't let go of that are causing you some harm. 
I know that was a lot, but really just want you to talk to each other about what are some of the stuff you're attached to. So find two or three people in the room. It's best if you do this with people you don't know rather than your friends that you're with, because that's the only way you're going to meet some people that you don't know. So maybe stand up, introduce yourself, meet some people in the room, talk for a few minutes about what you're attached to at home. I'll open up the breakout rooms. I encourage you to join the breakout rooms. It's easier to meet people when you actually talk to them. One of the first tasks of mindfulness meditation is um, breaking our addiction to thinking. And I think we can probably all uh, acknowledge that our thinking is a compulsive behavior that leads to harm. How, how often we harm ourselves with our own judgments and criticisms and you know the afflictive emotions that we identify with in our minds that cause us harm the comparing and the insecurity and jealousy and anger and resentments and all of those mind tendencies that create suffering for us and um, the first instruction in meditation is uh, in some way or another it's ignore your mind and pay attention to your body breathing Break your addiction to always being involved in the thoughts. Come back to the breath. Come back to the body. Uh, and then later we open. The, the Buddha encourages us to say, no, you can't ignore your mind forever. You can't, you can't practice renunciation or abstinence from thinking. So we have to actually train the mind. We have to um, create healthy thought patterns and change our relationship to the mind by starting to see how impermanent thought is how impersonal thought is um we, we we can renounce thinking in the beginning try try to abstain from thinking break our addiction to being so identified with our mind but eventually we uh, have to open up to observing the mind and finding some discernment about what thoughts to trust and which ones to acknowledge as ignorance and that you know i think it's a little bit hard for people who don't meditate to have the humility to um, be accused of being ignorant of you know looking at our minds and acknowledging that a good percentage of what arises in the mind is not true and is not worthy of our attention and is going to create a bunch of suffering for us and so you know we open the instructions in meditation to observing and identifying like oh that's just fear Oh, that's worry again. That's judging. That's comparing. That's and having a relationship to all of these unhelpful tendencies of our mind. Uh, maybe helpful on a survival level, but not helpful on a happiness level. And usually we come to meditation because we've decided I'd like to be happy. I'd like to be peaceful. I'd like to have some freedom from unnecessary suffering in my life. And so then. We have this task and mindfulness is this tool to give us the skills first to ignore the mind and then to train and observe the mind so i'll give some instructions we'll meditate and then we'll talk about renunciation so find a way to sit that's upright relaxed find a posture that feels sustainable allowing your eyes to be closed your body to become <laughs> settled into relative stillness Right. 
take a moment to release any unnecessary tension. Make sure that you're sitting in a way that's not too tight, too rigid or stiff. Balancing the vertebrae in an upright way, the head resting on the neck. Let the jaw release, the shoulders, the belly soften. Let the chair support you or the cushion. And allowing our hands to rest in our lap or on our legs, wherever feels appropriate. And as we undertake this task of training the mind, of developing wisdom, I always encourage us to begin with establishing kindness, the intention to be friendly and patient and accepting with the process. To be kind to the confused mind, to the uncomfortable body. And establishing mindfulness, focusing our attention on the sensations of the breath as we disengage from the thinking mind. Let the thoughts be in the background. Focus your attention on the sensation that the breath creates at the nostrils or chest or belly. The Buddha said something like breathing in. Know that you're breathing in, breathing out. Know that you're breathing out. What gives you that awareness of the breath coming and going as the primary object of attention?
when the attention gets drawn away from the breath back into thinking or somewhere else in your experience, acknowledge it, name it. But remember the intention of friendliness and kindness. Just accept thinking again. Then gently choose to return to the breath. We're not trying to stop the mind, but we are trying to stop being so involved, so identified with what the mind is up to.
for tonight's practice. Keep it simple, just the breath, just the body. One teaching, the Buddha said that all of the Dharma, the truth about reality, all, all that we need to know to be free from suffering, will be revealed right here in the body. That we're not thinking our way to freedom, but through investigating the physical sensations. come to understand the causes of suffering and what ends suffering.
The body breathes all by itself. Awareness receives the breath, knows. The heart beats all by itself. The organs doing their job. The nervous system feeling. And the mind thinks. But with training, we can choose what we pay attention to. How we relate to what's happening in the body, the heart and the mind. becomes more and more clear that all of the experiences are impermanent, changing. And that so much of what we've been taking personal, being identified with, is quite impersonal, just the body, subject to aging, illness, death, the self-centered tendency of our minds, also not your fault, not personal, it's part of the human condition.
<laughs> I really appreciate the um, straightforwardness and and um, kind of pragmatic approach that the Buddha took to awakening or or meditation. Um, very much just identifying uh, if you're not happy and peaceful and at ease, equanimous about things, uh, why? What is it that's blocking your happiness? Now, I think uh, we have a tendency to uh, blame external circumstances, to be like, well, it's this person, it's this situation, it's this uh it's the world it's the you know ignorance of the world if the world were just then i'd be happy <laughs> um it's and it's quite easy to get stuck in that story and it's uh not true actually even if the world even if there was no ignorance and oppression in the world we would still be creating suffering for ourselves based on clinging and craving and you know the attachment that causes our suffering now when there's major things going on it's easy to be like that's why of course i'm attached to justice of course i'm attached to uh the world being different than it is But the Buddhist teaching is, is that actually we don't need the world to change at all or anyone else to change at all. To be happy, to be peaceful, to be at ease, to end suffering. That we don't have to wait for anyone else to change. That everything that we need to experience happiness, for lack of a better word, freedom, contentment, Nirvana, the Buddha's word, uh, is right here in us. That it's there's no external, nothing needs to change out there. Everything that needs to change is in here for us to be happy, for us to be at peace with ourselves the way we are. The um, core the way that the Buddha put it, he used this word, he said that the core issue, the core problem, the cause of suffering, of unhappiness, of stress, of, of all of our difficulties, the core cause, he used the word tanha. Tanha is a Pali word that translates most directly, we, we tend to translate it as craving. Craving is the cause of suffering. But the word actually means thirst. Uh, tanha means to be thirsty. And, you know, thirsty as in like the uh, alcoholic thirst, like I, you know, as in the dying, like I have to, not just like, um, a little, little parched, I'd like a sip of my tea. But I could take it or leave it, right? It's not that kind of thirst. It's the kind of like, I, I have to, I have to have it. And so as we reflect, as I asked us earlier in the beginning of class to reflect on what are all the things that we think we need, 
that we're craving for, that we're clinging to, that we're addicted to, that we're tanha, how does it show up in your life? And it's, sometimes it's um, pretty obvious, the external behaviors, um, sense pleasures, you know, that we're addicted to. Um, sometimes it's uh, looking at the, um, you ever find yourself having enough humility to be like, I'm addicted to anger. I'm, I'm in this compulsive, repetitive, uh, you know, of like feeling angry of, and, and maybe that justified, like, it feels so good to be right and angry at everybody else for, you know, and it's, it's more like an emotional uh, clinging. So then the Buddha says, you know, we don't have to live like that and nirvana is possible. You can free yourself. You can end craving. You can end tanha and you can experience nirvana. It's possible. And how do we get there? You can get there through the Eightfold Path. And you, we can break the Eightfold Path up into three categories. One is the wisdom that we develop. Understanding reality as it is and not the conditioned ignorance that, that we uh, think about the world, not some of our religious uh, ignorance that we've been conditioned with. Um, understanding karma. Karma is one of the things we need to understand. Cause and effect is in effect. <laughs> Part of what's happening here is that cause and effect is it's happening. Um, so the wisdom is uh, understanding and intentions and changing our intentions. But then the next intentionally being kind, like I said in the beginning of meditation, set your intention to be kind, to be friendly. And probably you saw during meditation that your mind wasn't kind and friendly and accepting. And it's not the mind's tendency to be kind and friendly and compassionate towards your own pain. It's the mind's tendency to hate pain. And so this is part of the wisdom. I have to learn this, this radical transformation from aversion as the natural human tendency towards unpleasantness to tolerance and mercy and compassion, kindness towards our own pain and the pain of others. So that's the wisdom. And then the, the next three are our renunciation. I wanted to mostly focus on renunciation, but um, the, the way that it's in the Eightfold Path, it is uh, right speech, renouncing. And even this term renunciation is a little like, maybe I could define it more simply as quitting, stopping, uh, abstaining, um, uh, not, in not indulging in, uh, not engaging in. Uh, so not engaging in speech that is going to have a karmic, uh, an effect, that's going to be negative, a harmful effect. So what we call wise or right speech, uh, right action, uh, not in, you know, it's, again, it's a renunciation, not engaging in behaviors that are gonna create negative karma for us. And the Buddha gives five, killing, stealing, 
lying, sexual misconduct, and indulgence in intoxicants as five uh, levels of renunciation. He says, you know, if you want nirvana, you want happiness, you want freedom, minimum level of renunciation, not killing, not lying, not stealing, not engaging in inappropriate sexual relationships that are causing harm to ourselves or others when there's dishonesty or uh, any kind of unskillfulness in it, intentional harm being caused. And the fifth renunciation, uh, I think has been most challenging for, for a lot, apparently for a lot of people to not drink alcohol or engage in uh, any kind of recreational drug use. Um, we're in a strange place in Buddhism. Last week, uh, Jeff online, who's my co-host on the Zoom and good friend, and he's a Dharma teacher. He asked me that question last week about what I knew about the Buddha's prophecy um, of uh, uh, the, that Buddhism won't last. And that there were, there's these kind of in Buddhism, there's and in the time of the Buddha, supposedly, we don't really know what the fuck he said, but supposedly, there was a time where he said, you know, the, the Dharma, the true Dharma, the, the Buddha Dharma is only going to last so long because it will become so corrupted by human ignorance. And um, I can't help but reflect on, um, you know, here we are in the West, 2600 years after the Buddha, Buddhism seems to be alive and well and there's buddhism all over asia still um you know there's japanese zen buddhism and there's tibetan buddhism and they're like the newest school but the kind of they're the rock stars the dalai lama you know he's like they got the cool art you know like i'm i'm over here like yeah I like the tibetan art way better it's cool they got the cool demons and shit i'm into that it's super metal Um, but the situation in the West, and it's maybe probably, probably wrong of me to say the West, but having learned Buddhism 35 years ago from mostly Western teachers that don't practice the fifth precept and the kind of, um, as Buddhism came to America by a bunch of hippies, you know, especially this form of Buddhism, the Western convert Buddhism. And a bunch of hippies that were like, we're, we're over in India, like smoking hash and, you know, taking acid in the 60s or whatever. And we found spirituality or Ramdas and all those guys and, and, and women that, that were the kind of founding, you know. But as they took the path of Buddhism and the, the practice, they didn't give up their drugs. Like almost none of them heeded the Buddha's teaching that said, if you want to be mindful and do this path, don't put into your body that which blocks mindfulness, intoxicants. Don't smoke weed, don't drink alcohol, don't, you know, microdose. You can't be mindful while you're microdosing. Don't do that. It blocks your ability to be mindful. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of going on a tangent, but the kind of decline of 
Buddhism, you know, what Jeff was asking about of like, uh, you know, kind of from the time where, you know, it was started 2600 years ago, and how it's migrated, how it's changed, and how Buddhism has changed as it's gone to each new country and in Tibet, it got mixed with some Hinduism and some of their Bun tradition and in China, it got mixed with Taoism and Confucianism and in Japan, it got mixed with their Shinto uh religion and and here in the west it's getting mixed with uh psychotherapy and it's getting mixed with it's been come so um uh, i'm also guilty uh, you know of, of of some of this mixing and um but for whatever reason i came to i came to buddhism out of desperation because of addiction because of the suffering that addiction created in my life so when i heard this was a path that supports abstinence from drugs and alcohol. I was like, that's perfect for me because I need to be abstinent because I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. So I, I can't fuck with that stuff. So being involved in a spiritual tradition that uh, encourages, teaches abstinence as part of the process. But then, you know, I came to find out that none of my teachers were practicing that and that Buddhism in the West was uh, sort of encouraging of like, oh, it's okay to drink in moderation, smoke some weed, drop some psychedelics, it's, you know, because of the, the hippie founders that were like, we're not giving up our drugs. So the second, uh, the um, fourth factor of the path that's about action, it's all about renunciation, stop killing, stop lying, stop stealing, stop getting high. Bring your full awareness to your behaviors and to be mindful. And the only reason there's an abstinence encouragement around drugs and alcohol is for in service of your mindfulness. There's no moral judgment. It's not it's not bad karma to get high you just can't be mindful and high at the same time that's the only you know it's not like you're uh, necessarily causing harm to anybody by having taken bong hits or or microdosing or you know, and the, you know the whole microdosing conversation is developing in an interesting way which and you know i could probably be convinced that it's healthier healthier in some ways to treat some things than some of the psychopharmacology you know uh, toxins that the Western medicine has created. So there's an interesting argument for it as a medicine, but um, the Buddha is saying no recreational use of anything that you're doing just for fun and that there's no such thing as sort of um, sacred intoxication from a Buddhist perspective. All of this like plant medicine, like I'm doing it for my spirituality, not uh, in line with Buddhism ever. There's no argument for it as part of a Buddhist path. Buddhist path is abstinence-based. Train your mind. See clearly based in your own effort and no sort of toxins that are giving you a, a false report about reality. Or maybe even a true report about reality, but it's not earned through your own wisdom. It's just a sort of glimpse of something. And then the um, fifth factor of the path 
uh, right livelihood and renouncing, not engaging in order to uh, create wealth and anything that's going to create negative karma for us. So, so also encouragement. Don't, you know, be careful around your relationship to money and greed and clinging and taking jobs or taking money for something that's causing harm to you or anyone else. So abstaining from harmful livelihoods, abstaining from harmful behaviors, abstaining from harmful speech. But within that, within the five precepts, pretty low level of renunciation. And kind of where I started and where I want to get to tonight to, you know, to explore together is this dilemma that we are in. I don't know if you feel like you're in, I feel like it can be a dilemma of knowing the cause of suffering is clinging and craving and knowing that the idea is non-attachment that the, the ideal the ideal is um, having a balanced relationship to sense pleasures not being not needing you know but finding a way to indulge in sexuality without turning it into suffering finding a way to indulge in money and material things without being so attached that we're suffering about them having had and being quite influenced by monks and nuns who give up sex give up money and having um practiced and, and now teaching for many years retreat where we go on retreat and i remember the first time i went on retreat and this was um you know pre-cell phone but you know letting go i had to turn off my beeper at the time <laughs> and um you know and and going into a retreat where i wasn't going to read i wasn't going to make eye contact i wasn't going to speak to anybody i was just going to be in myself i wasn't going to make any phone calls i wasn't going to watch any television uh you know and, and having that experience of renouncing all of the, my comforts, all of the things that I was used to doing, reading books, watching shows, talking to people, engaging in entertainment, engage, engaging in sensuality, masturbation, letting all of that go and going on to retreat. And I remember it being framed, and I sometimes frame it like this, of like pseudo monasticism. Like we're not monks or nuns or you know we're not monastics but you're going to go kind of pretend like you are for the week <laughs> you're going to be celibate you're going to meditate you know sitting and walking you're going to do that all day and those experiences of renunciation uh i believe changed my relationship to sense pleasures seeing that i could not engage in masturbation for a week you know, where I was in a habit of regularly engaging and then saying like, oh, I can actually not engage that uh, I, I think I have to read every night before bed. I love to read. And then putting it down and being like, oh, actually, I can go to sleep without reading. I thought I was dependent on reading. And I learned that in juvenile hall. <laughs> like, <laughs> I thought I needed to keep doing that. Oh, I don't need to do that. I can put that down. So we have uh, in, in the against the stream tradition and sort of the Western um, this, okay, this dilemma of, yes, we get to do what you can have sex and money and stuff, but are you suffering about it? Are you causing suffering to yourself around it? 
And where's the role of renunciation? Not just not killing humans, but the precepts as a practice. You know, I actually have to confess that I murdered today. There's a whole bunch of flies in our kitchen and I murdered maybe one or two of them. Um, and it's against my precepts. You know, like I actually try not to kill and then sometimes I engage and you'll be like, I'm gonna fucking kill this fly right now. <laughs> For a while in the beginning of my relationship, I got my wife to do it, but then she caught on. She caught on, she's like, oh, you're trying to let me get all the karma? Fuck you. I'm not doing all the murdering in this house. <laughs> thinking about this um for a couple reasons uh one is i today i started a fast have you had you fasted before doing i'm starting a like a i probably only do a five day juice fast but over the years i've been fasting you know maybe once a year sometimes i've not done it for a few years sometimes i've done it a few times in a year and i think it's such a cool and and uh, powerful practice to not eat um because there's isn't that there's that sort of feeling of like no i have to eat at least twice a day probably three times a day and there's a you know i don't know if any of you brought it up in that conversation of like that idea of like i have to eat and not only do i have to eat i need to eat what i like and i need to eat not only what i like but what i think is delicious what i think is healthy what i think is I, you know, and that's a, a kind of a, a core need for us. But it's so cool to take a break from and be like, you know what? I don't have to eat anything. I can survive on liquids as long as you have some water. I'm doing some juice. And to, uh, after a day or two, I'm being like, wow, I eat all of the time. And I think I need to eat all of the time. But it's not true. That's not a behavior that I, you know, in the long run, of course, you do have to eat, but that taking a break, practicing renunciation around food, I find so interesting for me. Um, and that it changes my relationship to food. I'll go, I'm such an indulgent person by nature, by tendency, by conditioning, by whatever it is, uh, that I'll go, you know, pretty quickly back into eating burritos for breakfast. But taking that break and being like, you know, this is actually a choice. It's not a need. It's a desire that I can choose to uh, satisfy or not. Likewise with sexuality, I don't know, um, have you been celibate? You ever, uh, celibate by choice, not just like I can't get laid, but <laughs> celibate by, by choice including masturbation full abstinence abstinence depending on your relationship to masturbation some people like to masturbate quite often some people not so much but such an interesting practice to say i'm going to take a month or two months or three months and not engage in any sexuality especially if you're single if you have you know if you're single you have that opportunity more and also if you're single maybe i don't know if this is true for you it's usually true for me when i'm single um when i'm single i think i need sex 
it, like that that's a source of happiness i think oh i need a partner i need you know i need to masturbate like that it feels like it's more uh convincing when there's not the opportunity but practicing uh in my early 20s many of you heard me talk about this in my early 20s i had this teacher who was encouraging celibacy even for householders as a spiritual practice and so i took a vow of celibacy and he said just you know try it for 30 days try to just not masturbate not engage in sex for a month and i was like okay i've never tried that before ever since i discovered masturbation when i was i don't know 11 or 12 or whatever i've just done it you know just regularly I don't want this, not necessarily compulsively, but just I started masturbating and when I feel like doing it, I, I do it. And then I was about 20 or so and I was like, oh, I've never tried not to. What would it be like to not masturbate for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days? And for me, being a bit of an extremist and also because I'd been uh, very inspired by Buddhism and I had these monks that had been celibate for decades, I was like, okay, 30 days, that was interesting. I'm gonna go for 60, I'm gonna go for 90. It turned into two years of celibacy, of not masturbating, of not engaging in any type of volitional sexuality, uh, a little under two years, but about two years. And I learned so much about craving and the impermanent nature of craving. And I learned so much about loneliness and being able to be with myself in and and um and you know not looking at pornography and not not seeking but actually having that much more time and energy for meditation that much more time and energy for uh investigating and being present with my emotions my mind state and not looking outside of myself for happiness years ago i was in thailand with one of my teachers my monastic teacher ajahn amaro and he uh, gave one talk that i was moved by and he was giving this talk to kind of public thai primarily thai audience and and he talked about the importance of, of in buddhism of learning to be hungry and to not just snacking all of the time, but to actually letting yourself be hungry, letting yourself investigate and work with feelings of hunger and, and breaking that compulsive tendency to like, I'm hungry, so I eat. It's okay to be hungry. And I don't know if you're aware of this, many, most of you probably are. Uh, Thai uh, Theravadan monastics take a vow to not eat any food after noon. So they get a little breakfast and a big lunch at like about 11 a.m. or just before midday, and then they never have dinner. And so he's talking from direct experience of what it's like probably every single day for the last 50 years to experience hunger. And how powerful it is to learn to be with that and the teaching of oh, desire arises and it passes. It's okay not to satisfy desire. He said, I encourage everyone take uh, in um, the other reason I'm thinking about this tonight is because a friend of mine 
student um, the other day we were talking and she said she's going to do a 90 day householder retreat where she's going to practice the eight precepts for three months. Now the eight precepts, so the five precepts I talked about, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't, you know, no sexual misconduct, no intoxicants. Now the eight precepts add three practices. One is to not eat after midday, to take that like the monks and the nuns and to say no dinner, no snacking, no dinner. I get to eat a big meal in the middle of the day. That's it, one meal. Or, you know, you can have a little bit of breakfast and then a big lunch. Um, the other two are no entertainment. I saw some snarls. <laughs> to let go of entertainment, no music, no shows, no reading for pleasure. You can do a little bit of reading for study or, or but, you know, no entertainment. Um, and not sleeping in a comfortable bed. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's no, it's no um, entertainment, I mean, it's no adornments. And um, for this woman, she, she might be, I don't, didn't see if she's here tonight or not. Um, and, you know, I feel like this maybe is a bit more gender specific around adornments. I, I might get in trouble for this, but I'll say it anyways. Um, that women tend to have more adornments and makeup and stuff like that than men. So for a guy, it's a bit maybe easier to be like, yeah, I'm not going to wear my bracelet or my ring or my, you know, like, um, but for a woman, she's saying I'm, and this is a woman who really likes makeup. Some women, it's like a thing, right? Like you really, some women, not so much. It's no big deal because you don't wear much makeup. It's like no adornments, no big deal. But this is a woman who like, like does really cool, like makeup fucking bad eyes and shit <laughs> super goth punk like fucking put it on and she said i'm gonna do 90 days and i'm gonna um you know and sell in and celibacy i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be celibate i'm not gonna eat after midday i'm not going to do the adornments and i'm gonna do this renunciation practice because for her motivated partially by relation, some relational um, things that she was seeing and uh, identifying some unhealthy relation uh, behaviors in relationship and saying, I'm going to take a break uh, from sex. I'm going to take a break from seeking even and practice celibacy and go ahead and frame it in this eighth uh, precept practice and let go of the entertainment that can take us away. The other thing that Amaro was saying in that teaching, he says, learn to be hungry. He said, also learn to be lonely. Also radical advice. And, uh, you know, it's like loneliness is the enemy. Like, oh, I'm lonely. I'm going to try to find companionship, friendship, some something. I'm going to find some entertainment, some distraction. It's not okay to just learn to be with my loneliness. And to just tend to that unpleasant emotion of feeling alone and wishing that I wasn't alone. And uh, he said, what a great practice, important. We learned that on retreat and art, you know, like the monks probably know a lot about that. But if you come on retreat, you're all invited. We have a seven day retreat coming up. And if you go on retreat, you probably experience that. Like here I am and I'm not going to talk to anybody for a week. 
and feel lonely, even though there's other people around. There's no connection. There's no uh, interaction. There's no communication. And we start to see, oh, I, so much of my self-esteem, so much of the way that I know myself is through interacting with others. Not so good at interacting with myself, of being in my own heart and mind and body, um, just as it is, without the being witnessed, without being celebrated, without being annoyed <laughs> by other people's attention. So I'm going to end with a st statement. It's my view. What I've found over my practice um, is that I love to indulge in sense pleasures. Okay, that's it all in there. <laughs> I love to indulge in sense pleasures. I love to read. I love to, I like my material things, my cars and motorcycles. I, you know, I, I love to travel. I love, I love dopamine hits. I love all of the stuff that's fun and pleasant and joyous in life. And I find that the way that I can relate to it with less, not total non-attachment, but, but with less attachment is by taking periods where I don't engage, whether that's on retreat or a fast or a period of celibacy or by stepping away from engaging, breaking the addiction type tendency to things, even with food where we can't call food an addiction. I mean, some people literally have eating disorder, food addictions, but all of us have that dependence on food, but taking a, a week to say, I'm not gonna eat, I'm just gonna drink liquids this week. I'm gonna sit with all of that hunger or going uh, on a retreat or, or you know, spending a weekend at home and not picking up the phone and say, you know, I'm just gonna practice sitting with my loneliness this weekend, rather than thinking I always have to avoid loneliness. Well, what an interesting practice to just sit with it, tend to it. So I guess my statement is as householders, it's important for us to practice renunciation because we're so indulgent. The five precepts are such a low level of renunciation. Now, for me, it does kind of blow my mind that so many people think that giving up drugs and alcohol is too much to ask. Like, really? Like, I want to meditate. I want to be, a, but I have to not get high? Fuck that, I'm out. <laughs> right? Um, and you don't, you know, and of course, the way I present Buddhism certainly is it's not a have to, but it's a strong encouragement. It's the Buddha's teaching to abstain from drugs and alcohol. Now, whether or not you choose to take on that part of the renunciation, entirely up to you. Of course, you're welcome in our community and in Buddhist, you know, community. And you'll find, as I've said before, you'll find more teachers who uh, engage in it than don't. I'm just one of the recovery ones that's like, I don't. And, uh, you know, I'm supported by the Theravadan perspective that says it's not what we do. Renunciation in service of a healthy indulgence so that our indulgence isn't dependence, but it is choice.
So it's not, I can't live without it. Totally can. I experience living without it, but I choose to engage in it. And it's a choice and not a compulsion or a addiction or a need. Few minutes for questions, comments, clarifications. What are your thoughts about renunciation? Dustin, go ahead. Um, so kind of in that last little bit where you talked about how um, loneliness, it's good to kind of experience loneliness and kind of, so for a lot of us that are in recovery in one form or another, you know, we're encouraged like the opposite of addiction is going to be connection. And we're pretty heavily relying on it, you know, especially like when the mind can really start going and it's just a little too much to suppress, you know, um, what are some like healthy ways that we are, we're able to kind of, you know, sit in our loneliness um, without it possibly causing harm? You know what I mean? Because I know as soon as I start to get a little fucking squirrely, I, you know, I've been taught to pick up the phone or, or to, I need to connect. I need to connect. I need to connect. So as to not do something or, you know, cause harm to myself or others. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, and I'd like to kind of hear your perspective on it. You know, Buddhism is on some level full of contradictions um, because there is, you know, there's the, you've probably heard me talk about this before, Dustin. On one hand, the Buddha says, there's no external refuge, nothing outside of yourself. It's going to work. It's an inside job is the core teaching. And then in the next, uh, you know, teaching, he says, uh, take refuge in the sangha you need community <laughs> you don't want to be isolated in this you want to be connected with other people in this and there's this you know seeming contradiction of like wait a minute isn't the sangha an external refuge isn't that fellowship or that need for you know i'm an addict i have to be connected to other people all of the time you know the most dangerous places for me to be alone in my head uh, and of course that's true for in the beginning of recovery and then at some point we have to break our dependence on um, community. Now, uh, maybe I should not even phrase it that way. Um, developing the ability to be alone is healthy. Now, even though it's healthy, we don't want to use that to then become an isolator and kind of saying like, I don't, we need community, we need, it's relational, we need to support each other, we need to be of service, we need to receive that, we need to, you know, connection is healthy and, and, you know, even the monks who, you know, have these vows of celibacy, they live in community, community is a core to, to Buddhism, but within that community, sometimes you go on retreat, these guys will go and you know live in the cabin by themselves in the monastery for a month or so and learn to just be be with themselves um i might like to reframe that statement of connection is the you know uh, opposite of addiction or the opposite of addiction is connection um to include maybe reframe or investigate to include actually when you're connected to your own heart when you're connected to your own, you know, the Dharma, the Buddha within you, actually, you don't need an external person always to connect with. You can learn to be totally here connected with yourself. Now, in early recovery, when you're still nuts, 
<laughs> and you can't trust your own thinking at all, then of course you want to surround yourself with people that are wise and that are going to support you and right for sure. But at some point we can break that idea that I have to go to a meeting every day or I'm going to drink or I don't have any ability to self soothe that it's always coming from someone else that you know and that one of my critiques of the the 12 step method which encourages um you know constantly if you you know i think it even says in the literature you know we found that that when we uh you know had unpleasant feelings based on paraphrasing that we should immediately reach out and be of service to a newcomer and it's kind of good advice at some stages of our life but when you've been sober for 10 years and you still don't know how to sit with your own emotions or deal with your own loneliness and you're constantly we would call it spiritual bypassing you're constantly avoiding your own feelings by being of service and connecting with others rather than learning to sit with your own thoughts and feelings and see they're just thoughts and feelings you know when you get to the place where you're like i'm not going to drink about this shit, it's just uncomfortable you gotta learn to be uncomfortable at some point and so that's you know it's just a little bit of a different perspective and i don't know i know you've come to some day-long retreats have you done a week-long retreat yet dustin no i haven't just the uh just the memorial day just yeah the three day, the three day. but you got a taste in that of three days where it's like we're kind of you know you're with people but also like not talking to anybody for three days and being in that you know a little bit of loneliness or a little bit of ice you know and be like oh i can do this it's okay for me to be with myself for three days i don't need to drink about it i hope that's somewhat useful there was a hand in, yeah please thank you um i found it interesting the fasting aspect so when i was studying northern indian music um the rugs sometimes you would fast from a note going up and then maybe fast from a different note descending or a couple of notes and, or how interesting is it like to fast from say using one hand or maybe not eating certain foods and then suddenly i i found oh my god i really want you know chocolate milkshake because i told myself that no you know dairy no whatever so it's, I, I agree, it's always interesting when you take something out of the mix to see how self responds to it. Thank you, Noah. Welcome. Any other thoughts in the room? It's just about, it's almost nine, so maybe we'll end there. Uh, Lupko, if you'd like to stay afterwards, I'd be happy to answer your question. I'm gonna end class now. Um, thanks for being here, thanks for reflecting. Uh, again, encouraging you to look at your own life and seeing, you know, where's there some opportunities for some more renunciation just as a, a voluntary practice in your own life. And um, don't go too extreme with it. Find balance, find some people that you have maybe some accountability with and um, I'll be here for the next couple Mondays, I believe next few Mondays. Um, we do have a seven day retreat coming up. You're all invited. 
And it's such a great way to deepen our meditation practice and this experience of renunciation is a central part of being on retreat, of letting go of the entertainment, the adornments, the sense pleasures, only eating what is offered. You don't get to choose what you eat on retreat. Sometimes the food's great, sometimes it's not that great, but it's what's for lunch. Mm -hmm. And you get to just work with that. And um, so there's information on that on the website. I think it's September 7th through 15th. So it's coming up and it's in the Southern California mountains up near uh, Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead up there. That's all I got for donate for um, announcements. Classes done by donation against the stream is a nonprofit organization that is uh, fully supported by your donations, your generosity. Uh, we don't charge for the class. Everybody's welcome. And um, we are dependent on uh, you know our existence on your generosity. Nobody's paying the bills for us. We pay the bills by by giving, and uh, our rent is our expenses are somewhere between four and five thousand dollars a month, um, just to kind of keep the lights on and keep the building. So if you can give $25 when you drop in for a class, if you can, if you feel moved and uh, if you can become a monthly supporter and saying like, hey, I want to give $50 or $100 a month and it's sort of an auto debit and, and you can do that, go to the website under monthly supporter and, um, and if you feel moved to, that's a request, but you get to do as you see fit. I think that's all I got for tonight. I don't have anybody working the desk tonight. Tara's out, Sebastian's out. Um, so donations can go in the bowl. There's a QR code for the Venmo. There's an address for the PayPal if you wanna do that online. Um, Jeff and Emily have posted the donation links there. Uh, if you want any merch, uh, let me know. There's a new poster um, that's out there on the desk that Mike Giant made. Um, that's uh, $50. That's a sort of fundraiser for the center. If you want to buy one of those, you can just Venmo the $50 to against the stream. So thank you. Many goodness that comes from our practice, our discussion of the Buddha's Dharma, be offered outward in all directions. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.